Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Self-awareness does not come easily to human beings. And the real value of self-help books isn't to help you, but a good self-help book forces you to be aware that you do not fully understand yourself. And I can't give you an algorithm or an equation for who to marry or whether to have children or how much time to devote to friends and family versus work or pleasure. But I try to give you some ways to think about it. And those ways focus on who you are and who you might become. The subtitle for the book is A Guide to the Decisions that Define Us, that define us. These decisions determine who we are and who we will be and that's something that's not easy to pay attention to. It's something that's easily forgotten. It's part of just easy to go through life, not paying attention. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. This week, we conclude our series for Mental Health Awareness Month by discussing what it means to achieve success on your own terms. We'll redefine what success means to you and explore the importance of prioritizing your mental health and well-being on the path to achieving your goals. Russ, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Great to be with you. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually found out about you and your work by way of your publicist who sent me your book, Wild Problems, which, as I just mentioned before we hit record here, was probably one of my favorites, I would say, my top 10, one of my top 10 books of this year. Uh, because it just resonated with me so much. But before we get into that, I wanted to start by asking you a question that might seem what, somewhat bizarre to you, but to me makes sense, given that I kind of see you as a combination of both a social scientist and an economist. And that is, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on where you've ended up with your life and what you've ended up doing? Uh, I don't know if I can answer the second part, but I could probably answer the first part. I, I went to a public high school. Uh, in Lexington, Massachusetts, I went to Lexington High School, and um, there were, um, I hung out with the kids that were like me, uh, and the kids that weren't like me, I tried to stay away from because they were going to hurt me, <laughs> occasionally, even in, in suburban Boston, and uh, 
in the 1970s, they, you know, it was um, sometimes open season on uh, nerdy uh, intellectual types, which I was one. So now, what that, that, how sorry, did that go ahead. affect my, uh, well, I don't know how that affected how I turned out. Most of my friends uh, went on to Harvard and MIT and other uh, Ivy League-like places. I went to the University of North Carolina. So I went, I took a different path for most of my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure I can help you with that, that answer. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can, I can kind of guide you through, through the rest of it. I, did your parents encourage any particular career paths? And you know, what is it that prompted you to actually not go to the Harvards or MITs of the world, given that that was kind of what your peer group was doing? Uh, my parents wouldn't have paid for it. They okay. were from Memphis. They grew up in the South. They didn't see um, the prestige of the Ivy League as being something worth paying for. Um, they put very little pressure on me to follow, well, none, to follow a particular career path. Um, I ended up being an economics major because I took a class in economics in high school. There was a standardized test in that class, and I did exceptionally well in it. And my teacher, which is weird, um, in a way, my teacher took me aside and said, "I, you know, I want you to she gave me Samuelson, the standard economic textbook of the day in college. She said, why don't you read this chapter and um, and maybe we'll talk about it. Or maybe I made a presentation of the class. And when I got to college, I thought, well, I'm good at this. I should take it. And I took a principles of economics class and I did well in it. And then I turned out I liked it. So my parents never wanted me to do anything in particular. I never got pressured to go to law school or med school or any particular career. Um, my dad was a very, very serious reader hmm. and my only intellectual aspiration in life was to be like him wow. to read. I'd look wow. at his books and w- when I'd be home and I'd say, someday I'll be able to read these and, um, I can't wait. And so that was, that was what was modeled in my household. What was the, the general narrative about education? Did they place a, I mean, as you mentioned, they didn't necessarily think it was worth paying for an Ivy League, but did they place a high value on education? Not really. Uh, They placed a high value on reading. Um, They're not the same thing, unfortunately. Um, My my father was the first, maybe the first person in his family to go to college. He went to Memphis State and he went to the University of Tennessee for a while, graduated, I think, from Memphis State. Uh, which is now called the University of Memphis. And then he went on to get a master's degree in psychology. And he was certainly the first person in his family to have a graduate degree. Uh, I had no aspiration for a graduate degree until I'd gone to college for a while. And um, yeah, that's a longer story we could talk about if you want. But more interesting, perhaps, is that my father told me that psychology was a waste of time even though he had a master's in it, it opened doors for him. But he said, I only got those doors open because I had a master's degree, not because of the psychology I understood. And uh, and so even though I was an economics major and I had to take 10 classes in the social sciences to graduate, my father had poisoned me against psychology, sociology, and anthropology. So I ended up taking a lot of history and philosophy to fulfill my... Uh, social science requirements, which uh, ended up serving me quite well. And I do 
So I love philosophy, and that's a lot of what I'm doing now. I'm a president of a college that that philosophy is at the center of Shalem College in Jerusalem, mm. and it's a big part of my life. But um, I also learned that psychology has some value <laughs> over the years. Yeah. It took me a while, but, but you know, parental biases do have an impact sometimes. That was oh. one of them. That's that's an understatement. I I I mean, growing up in an Indian family, I realized one of the biggest parental bias, biases that I you know I wasn't even really aware of until the last couple of years was that there's almost an inherent prestige bias that we have. Like we look at people who come from elite schools, and by default, we think, okay, they're they've done something right. They're better people. And you know, like I have uh, a really good friend, my best friend, and I were talking about this cognitive bias that we both have. We both talk about the fact that, yeah, as entrepreneurs, we question the value of higher education. Um, and then we both say, you know, if we saw a girl on Bumble who didn't have a college degree, we wouldn't swipe right. And I realized, you know, I said, you realize we just contradicted what we just said with our own behavior, even though we don't, we claim we don't believe that that influences us. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. So, you being the president of a college, I want to spend some time talking uh, about education, actually, which I never let any academic out of my conversations without hammering them with my questions about education. But I want to start with you in particular, because I was an economics major. Uh, you had this moment so early where you discovered this thing that you liked. And I feel like that is one either really rare, which is so often why you have these people who spend 15 years working only to wake up one day and discover they hate their life and they hate their job, mm -hmm. or two, difficult, because what the hell does an 18-year-old know about themselves when they have so few data points about their life? So no, why do you think that? And, and so, yeah, so why is this? Like, what do we do about this? Well, so many systems, educational systems in the world, I don't know them well. I, I know a lot about the American university system, and now I know a little bit more about Israel's, having been here now a year. Um, America's relatively unusual in that they expect you to take introductory classes in various fields and see what you find interesting. Uh, unless you're pre-med. If you're pre-med, you kind of have to put your nose to the grindstone right from the day one. But in general, you know, if you say to somebody who's a freshman in college in America, what's your major? And you say, I don't know. It's not embarrassing. It's not a big deal. But in a lot of parts of the world, it's not, you can't do that. You basically apply for a major at 18. Um, and that's a little bit weird for exactly the reason you said. You don't know yourself. You don't know what you like or don't like. Uh, you basically are getting on a a pretty fast moving train. You can get off it. You can you can change, uh, but sometimes that's costly or very costly. And um, I guess I've come to believe that real education is not at the undergraduate level is not about mastering the facts behind a particular discipline or understanding some of the theories. It, it involves. It should involve more fundamental skills, which is what we try to do here at. I'm where I'm at. It's learning how to read, write, think, listen, converse. And those skills emerge from small conversations about great texts. They're not taught. Those skills can, are very difficult to teach. And the standard Western model of a really smart person at the front of the room talking for an hour and a quarter while people take notes is, um, is a bizarre model. It, it Nothing goes, very little goes in. I mean, you get exposed to some ideas. You you will learn something. 
a bunch of what you learn will be forgotten. And it's not transformational. Mm-hmm. And then people say, well, yeah, yeah, but that comes in graduate school. And, and what they've done in most programs in America, undergraduate education is a dumbed down version of graduate education, which is weird. Most people aren't going to graduate school. Why would you do it that way? You know, right. Astronomy is a dumbed down version of graduate astronomy. Economics is typically not, I think some people not a teacher, but really a dumbed down version of a, of graduate economics. And that's not useful to someone who's not going to go to graduate school. Mm-hmm. It's not what's the, it's not the magic or perspective that you can get from a real economics education. It's a tragedy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. 
I can get, relate 100% because I was an econ major at Berkeley, which has a world-class economics department. And when yep. I graduated, I didn't know a damn thing about economics. I ended up being an environmental econ major because my grades were so bad. And I remember sitting in this class my senior year, listening to a professor talking about how to use a utility function to maximize the amount of milk that you could get out of a cow. And I'm looking at him thinking, when the fuck am I ever going to need to know this? But funny enough, I, after writing it off and hearing Nabal Rabikan on a podcast talk about, uh, it was a podcast titled How to Get Rich Without Getting Lucky. And he said, if you want to understand anything, go read the original text in a given field. He said, if you want to understand how business works, read The Wealth of Nations, and you'll learn more about business than any other business book will teach you. And of course, you know this, The Wealth of Nations is a bitch to read because it's archaic. <laughs> you know, the language is complicated. And oh my God, I, I walked out of reading that book with so many ideas that I now actually apply to how I design systems for how I use technology um, and how I think about my own business and you know, the whole idea of division of labor and, and looking at the lens of division of labor through the combination of dividing labor between technology and people. It, it was like just this sort of flurry of insights. And like, wait a minute, I never got anywhere near this level of understanding of economics from being at Berkeley, where Laura Tyson, Clinton's economic advisor, was teaching introductory economics. Yeah. Yeah, in theory, you got a world class education. Yeah, exactly. Would say Berkeley. In is reality, that, not so much. A, right, exactly. And I think uh, tragically, that's true in many places. Uh, I, I want to put in a word for the world wealth of nations. There are harder books to read, uh, and many chapters of the wealth of nations are can be read with with, with delight. Some can't be. Yeah. Just hearing this and thinking, I wonder if that's worth reading after that rave review. Uh, so when you get to the chapters you can't read, just skip them. There's plenty <laughs> worth reading there that's in yeah, between. Totally. Yeah, no, that, that's kind of, I think, more or less the approach I ended up taking is that I took, but I think the other thing that I realized, and I'd be curious to hear your take on this, I, I just finished writing this piece titled Advice to Freshmen Who Are Starting College uh, that I published on Medium. It was based on a conversation that I had with uh, my cousin's friend's son, who uh, was going to be a freshman at UC Riverside, where my dad is a professor. And... You know, he and I talked for 20 minutes and I told him everything that got you to where you are that made you a straight A student in high school will not work when you get to college. Because in high school, I, I finally realized I was like, I wasn't a straight A student in high school because I had any level of intelligence. I had discipline. I was like, any idiot can get straight A's in high school with a bit of effort and discipline. And so what I realized, I think, particularly after reading The Wealth of Nations, is that nobody really teaches you how to learn because what ends up happening is you're presented all these different concepts, you do all these problem sets, then you get to an exam, and the real test is whether you can apply it in a context that you've never seen before. And I wonder, one, you know, how you get students to really understand that. And two, this is a big question. And when I ask everybody, and everybody seems to have different answers, it's ridiculous, because we could talk about an hour for hours about this. But if you were tasked with redesigning the American education system from the ground up, how would you change it? Well, I want to first, of course, say something about the basic question of what someone is starting a college experience and your observation that you don't learn how to learn. Um, that's certainly true. Um, I think what, 
what real education can do for you is teach you how to read. That's no small feat. It sounds silly. Of course, I know how to read. But how to read thoughtfully, how to be skeptical, how to integrate what you've read with other things you've read. That's learning for me to a large extent. There are other parts of it, but that's a huge part of it, what I've just outlined. And um, I'm going to say something a little strange, maybe, but one way that many of us learn how to think and read is by writing. And so I think one of the mistakes that students make when they design their college experience, many students stay away from classes that have writing because they're afraid of them. They think, oh, I don't want to have to write. Then you're not going to get better at it. And it's really an important skill. It's a surprisingly important skill in 2022 even. And you can think of it as communication, which is a central skill in any anything you do. It doesn't matter whether it's business, um, nonprofit, government. Being able to write is an important gift, and it requires effort, and it requires the honing of that ability. And the uh, only way you do it is by, one of the only ways you do it is by doing it, practicing it, working at it. You know, start a blog. If you're going to write a blog, even if nobody visits it, just write often and you will get better. You do have to do it thoughtfully, but just by writing often, you will get better. Um, the other thing I would say to the uh, entering first entering college student is uh, take the best teachers, not the best classes. Yeah. You find a great teacher, take everything they teach. doesn't matter what the subject matter is. They'll make it interesting. They'll make your brain bigger. And so often, I think people either look for easy classes or they look for subjects that interest them. Subjects that interest you is not a bad idea, but a subject that interests you that's taught by a bad teacher is a nightmare. <laughs> and a subject that doesn't interest you that's taught by a master is going to be life-changing. It almost doesn't matter what it is. No. Um, but now to your other question, what we do to overhaul uh, the college system or the K-12? through 12? Which one do you want? Well, let's you know do a little bit of time on both and then we'll get into the book a little bit uh, so so on k through 12 i think um of course the problem is is just a, in most settings not every school but in most of the settings most high schools most middle schools and most grammar schools they have a, a version of what we're talking about here that doesn't work very well um, what I call, uh, I, I like to quote Plutarch. He didn't say it because he didn't write in English. And it turns out even in English, it's a slight corruption of the translation. But he said, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be kindled. And I don't think many K through 12 teachers, schools think of it that way. They think of it as, what do our students need to learn to move to the next level? So if you're going to study calculus, you better learn some geometry, and then you got to learn algebra, maybe a different order, and then pre-calc, trig, et cetera. And now you're ready because you know this other stuff. Yeah, going back to your point about thinking how to learn or, or being able to think, um, there's a lot of recipe-driven math. Learn how to manipulate the equations. Fundamental understanding is takes too long. Um, and so just there's just a failure at, at so many levels of both that kind of tool acquisition by in, in, say, STEM classes and in the English and other in history classes, just not learning how to read thoughtfully. I have a, I have a, a person here uh, 
on our staff who teaches at a local high school. And she told me she reads books uh, in a very different way than her colleagues. I said, how do you read them? She said, well, we read the first page and then we talk about it. And I said, then why? She said, well, we read the second page. <laughs> now, the magic is in the talking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, if the talking about it is, yeah, what'd you think? You don't get very much out of it. If the talking is about, does this character strike you as someone you should admire? Or would you be afraid of this person if you met him in real life? How does this person's decision-making relate to what you do as a decision? There's so many thoughtful questions that a great teacher learns to ask, and, and you have to learn how to conduct a conversation. There's not a lot of that going on in K-12 education yeah. in the United States or, unfortunately, in the university level. So the simple answer, since I don't know how to build an education system, and nobody does, actually. Yeah. It would be great to have a system that was responsive to what parents want. Now, you could argue that parents don't know what they want. I think that's true to some extent. They also can't desire, design a system. They can choose things that make sure that their children aspire to greatness, aspire to excellence, aspire to grow. And we fail at that so often, I think, in the United States at both the K-12 through and the, and the college level. There's an emphasis on credentialing. Mm. Uh, there's an emphasis on being in a hurry. Uh, there's an emphasis on don't expect too much. The students will, you know, this is a YouTube generation, the TikTok generation. They can't read a whole book. Give them an excerpt. And don't pick a great book that stood the test of time. Pick a book that'll appeal to them, you know, that has, you know, that's hip or that's maybe even better, mildly vulgar. You know, they'll think it's kind of, on the it's edgy, and I just uh, it's just so sad. Um, so there's a lot of things that have been lost, and yeah. uh, I don't know if there'll be a pendulum swing back at either the K through 12 or the university level in the United States. Uh, you know the humanities, which are uh, at the center of this, the college I'm in, the Shalem, the hum- the humanities in America are dead. They're dying and soon to be dead. They've dwindling numbers of students. The people who teach it don't believe in, in it. They, they've made it an ideological or, um, I don't know, ideological is the best word, driven process. The idea of reading a great book like The Odyssey by Homer for um, what it tells us about the human heart is just out of fashion. And uh, you know, there's still people around the world who teach that way and help you explore it and do so. And again, in small groups, but that um, is not the mainstream of, of American education and hasn't been for a while. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, it sounds like I am literally asking you what the solution is to what you call a wild problem. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it's funny to listen to you describe reading that way because I it just kind of sparked this insight for me that, wow, this explains why I absorb information from the books that I read in a way that I never did before, because I have the good fortune of getting to talk to somebody like you about the book that I just finished reading, which forces me to ask a whole set of different questions that I wouldn't be asking if I didn't just sort of, you know, really, if I just went through the motions and read the books, highlighted a bunch of passages and called it a day. Yeah, if you if you had been given this book by a friend and said, I really like this, I think you'll enjoy it. You'd read it. You might enjoy it. You get something out of it, probably. Uh, I like to think you would, but if I said to you, as I do the same thing because I have a podcast. If I said to you, you've got to interview this person and you better find interesting things 
to talk about related to the book, uh, you read it totally differently. Yeah. Uh, in some ways, it, it, you know, when I get a book, I try to read every book uh, by my guests that, that we're talking about. Uh, I don't get a set of pre-scripted questions from the publicist. I refuse them if I get them. Okay. Uh, but I try to read every page. I don't read every word necessarily. Uh, if I if I get to a past set of, of passages where I'm pretty sure we're not going to talk about it, I will skim them because I want to make sure I don't miss something that the author is going to say and then misunderstand their point. But I might not read every word. On the other hand, there are many books I read for my for, by my guests where I read every word. So I savor them as a reader and I'm reading them for what can I ask about this? Is my take different? What do I have to say that that's that's uh, could challenge this? And that's, you know, you could call that real reading. You know, I had Agnes Callard on my program and she said, you know, great education teaches you how to talk to dead people. So when you're reading something by Homer or Plato or Shakespeare or Jane Austen, uh, she's or he's not just talking to you. You're talking back. Like, are you sure this is true? Wow. Is that normal for a human being or is that really just going to be Achilles? Mm-hmm. And that's a totally different kind of reading. And it's talking to dead people. And it's it's I want to say two things about it. Then you can ask me about my book if you want. But um, talking to dead people is really fun because. Some of the most interesting people of all time aren't alive, unfortunately. So the only way to talk to them is through their books. And it's an amazing human experience to um, be able to read Adam Smith. I wish I could interview him for Econ Talk, but <laughs> at least I can re- at least I can talk to him and read his book and and draw lessons from it and challenge it and think about it. And, and as if I read it with other people, uh, really uh, spar and grapple with the ideas with another person. That's even better. Um, but the other part is it's powerful because they have a lot of wisdom. Mm-hmm. It's not just that, well, they're part of the classic canon and Western thought. There's a reason they're part of the canon. They have things to teach us. So here you have these great people you can hang out with. You can go to the bar and, and schmooze with them over a drink while you're reading their, their book. And uh, why wouldn't you? They stood the. T- I like to say this. That when I was when I was a uh, when I was younger, I read um, pretty much a book a week, and and then I had children, and I read a book a night, but they had a lot more pictures. Yeah, I read books to my kids. It was harder for me to find time to read. But if you're a serious, pretty serious reader, you might be able to read a book a week. It'd be really amazing to read two books a week, right? You really have some, the spare time. You're a fast reader. Well, think about that. You might have 50 years of reading in your life, mm-hmm. 20 to age 70, 50 books a year, a book a week. That's 2,500 books. That's not a lot of books. No. Read, read the good ones. <laughs> don't, don't waste time on fluff. You don't have time. Don't waste that time. I mean, occasionally, I, I mean, I read plenty of fluff, by the way. I, I don't want to suggest that you should only read Shakespeare. Uh, or uh, Homer or uh, Adam Smith, it's okay to read for pure pleasure and delight and the thrill of a good story. But um, you should pay attention to what you choose to read. It's not unimportant. Oh, you're, you're speaking my language as the guy who, you know, I, it, like I'm very lucky because I 
as a part of my job, get to read books. So I, I think I yeah. average about 100 a year. So and even then, I probably won't get to that. Yeah, I'm thinking 2,500. I, I think I guess I was like a thousand books in the last 10 years. And I think one of the reasons that your books really struck me so much is it kind of summarized a lot of what has been on my mind lately as I've thought about self-help books. And, you know, in a lot of ways, your book would be potentially categorized as a self-help book, but through the lens of an economist thinking. And you open the book by saying wild problems are the big decisions all of us have to deal with as we go through life. The wild problems, whether to marry, who to marry, whether to have children, what career path to follow, how much time to devote to friends and family, how to resolve daily ethical dilemmas. These big decisions can't be made with data or science or the usual rational approaches. Wild problems resist measurement. What works for you might not work for me. And what worked for me yesterday might not work for me tomorrow. Wild problems are untamed undomesticated, spontaneous, organics, complex. And I think the reason that that stood out to me and immediately I was like, oh my God, I love this book was, wait a minute, somebody has written a self-help book about every one of these wild problems is an, an attempt to actually help people solve them. Yeah. I, um, when I was younger, right, the idea of a self-help book was to me um, uh, unattractive. And so this is my second self-help book. I wrote a book called uh, How Adam Smith Can Change Her Life, which is essentially a self-help book, as is this current one, Wild Problems. And um, I justified that to myself saying, well, I write self-help books for people who don't like self-help books. Because <laughs> I am because because I have a certain snobbish uh, side to me. But it turns out I actually like self-help books. I, I think... Um, I've gotten older and wiser, I think, I hope. And I realized somewhere along the line, it took me a while, that self-awareness does not come easily to human beings. And the real value of self-help books isn't to help you, often in the way that the author is trying to, to help out. But a good self-help book forces you to be aware that you do not fully understand yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and... Part of what I'm trying to do in this book, I can't give you an algorithm or an equation for who to marry or whether to have children or how much time to devote to friends and family versus work or pleasure. But I try to give you some ways to think about it. And those ways focus on who you are and who you might become. The subtitle for the book is A Guide to the Decisions That Define Us, That Define Us. These decisions determine who we are and who we will be. And that's something that's not easy to pay attention to. It's something that's easily forgotten. It's part of just easy to go through life not paying attention. And I think a lot of the value of the self-help literature to the extent it's quality is force you to pay attention. It's not a skill that most of us have. It, you can cultivate it. Uh, but a lot of people never learn to cultivate it. And I certainly didn't for a long, long time. I, I spend a little more time now uh, thinking about my shortcomings, my flaws, my biases, and my weirdnesses. The things that were, you know, you opened this conversation talking about my parents. You know, so many things my parents did unintentionally that were glorious and a few that maybe weren't so glorious. And, and I can see them now. I didn't see them for a long time. Things that are inside me that I'm now aware of that I think came from the way I was raised or what, what are, you know, signals and incentives that they put in place that I never saw until 
they arose in my own behavior. And being aware of that's very powerful. It's um, being able to step outside yourself and look at yourself in a, in a thoughtful way is, um, you know, for me, it's part of growing up. Yeah. And for some people, it takes a while. And some of us probably never grow up. Not the worst thing in the world. I don't want to oversell how important it is, but it's delicious when um, you can see your buttons being pushed and you can realize, oh, oh I know that button. I'm not going to let it get pushed. I'm just going to watch and I'm going to, I'm going to slow it down and, and not respond that way that I'm, that I've responded 25 times before. You know, one of the challenges I think we have in our relationships with the people around us is that, you know, there's no script, but often there's an effectively a script. We have certain modes of interaction with our, their spouse or our best friends or our cousin or our siblings or our parents or our children. And sometimes you can actually break out of them. But the other people don't know that. They think you're still doing the same old script. So being open to those to the other people changing the script and hoping that they can understand that you sometimes could change the script is a superpower. <laughs> really hard to do, but it's a superpower. Yeah. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, speaking of, of changing the script, I mean, you kind of give us this sort of macro level look at decisions by talking about the difference between a scalar and a matrix. And then, you know, looking at that, you know, on top of sort of what you call the cost benefit approach to making decisions or, you know, for people who don't understand that term, sort of the pro and con list that we tend to make. So can you first explain the difference between a scalar and a matrix for people who are listening and, you know, where they've probably seen it without necessarily even knowing it? Yeah, so uh, it, it's a math. Those are two math terms that are a little bit scary, but they shouldn't be. Um, scalar just means a number like 7 or 43 or 62 or 150. And if I have two things I want to compare, and let's pick uh, vacation. I'm going to go on a vacation. I can choose between a vacation at the beach or a vacation in the mountains. So, uh, or actually a better choice would be a vacation at the beach where I'm going to sit there and do not very much versus a vacation in a city with lots of museum tours and, and, and nightclubs and restaurants versus sitting on the beach and hanging out and chilling. So we understand that there's pros and cons for each of those vacations and that often they're very, sensitive to our own nature, right? For some people, sitting there doing nothing at the beach is heaven, and for other people, it's hell. Similarly, an intense urban vacation, for some people, that's not a vacation. I need to relax. For other people, it's incredibly stimulating, and they come back a totally different person. So I think about those things, but wouldn't it be great if there was a single number you could use, like a, a vacation in the cities of 17, but a vacation on the beach is an 11, so I'll choose the city. And I suggest in the book that a lot of times we want to boil down our choices to a number, uh, a single number that abstracts from all the complexity, all the different aspects of, of a choice. And that way we can make the right choice. We can just choose the one with the higher score. So to take a trivial example, height is useful in basketball. So in general, People who are putting together professional basketball teams choose the taller players relative to people who aren't tall, right? People who are five foot five very rarely 
make it into the National Basketball Association. I think there's one or two in the last 50 or 40 years. Um, they're not always very successful, and most people know that, so they don't start with them. And how do they know? Well, because that's a pretty powerful scalar. Just number of inches from the bottom of your feet to the top of your head goes a long way. And then there's a, another scalar that people use, which is wingspan. Like having extra long arms relative to your height is very uh, important in basketball because often your wingspan, the, the length from fingertip to fingertip of your extended arms, allows you to play as if you were taller. So a lot of thoughtful people in basketball realize that and they go, well, okay, so that's a good number to know. I'll use that to help me make a decision about who to choose in the draft or who to start or who to play. And we get that. I have a house. I'm looking at two houses. What's the scalar I want to use? Square footage. That's easy. Which is the bigger house? And I'm at one, I might not want a big house. So that's a good, it's just not necessarily always use the bigger scalar. But you know what I each room has its own size. And yet often as a starting place, I'll boil, boil down the size of the house to a single number. How many square feet is it? How big's the lot? How many square feet's the lot? The, the yard, right? The, the footprint. And yet in many decisions, I don't just care about the tote. I care about the different pieces. I might want a really big kitchen because I like to entertain or cook. In which case, the square footage of the kitchen I don't literally need the square footage. I can see it usually. That's going to matter independently of the size of the house. And the matrix is a set of scalars, a set of numbers. So if I said to you, uh, uh, here's a person you're thinking of hiring for your company. You might say, okay, I want to, they have different characteristics, different attributes. Well, there's intelligence. There's reliability. There's, uh, do they show up on time? Are they a good writer? Um, et cetera. Are they a good team player? Is their ego getting in the way? And I can make a score for each of those. And once I've done that, you might be higher on the score than me on some things that I might be higher on others. So which one should I choose? And would it be great if I just boil it down? I could take an average, kick a weighted average. And we have an incredible impulse, I think, as human beings to do that. In economics, the most obvious example of this is gross domestic product, GDP. I mean, what a scalar, what a simplification, the dollar value, all the goods and services, it abstracts from all the complexity. So if I say, oh, the economy got 3% bigger this year compared to last year, could be there are parts of it that shrunk, parts of it that went up by 6%. We say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, well, we decided just, I just want a general feel for the overall picture. Well, it's pretty effective. It's, it's a pretty informative number. But is it the only thing we care about? Right? Would we really be comfortable and happy if the economy as a whole grew three percent, but their half of it shrunk and people were struggling? Would that wouldn't that be kind of worrisome? And so if we're not careful, we abstract from all that complexity and just focus on that one number. And I think we have a human inclination that way. And so part of what I write about in the book, and I've written about this in another in an essay that I published to Medium, is that it's not that scalars are wrong, but that they're limited. And if we're not careful, we'll forget they're limited. And the pro-con list that you mentioned or the cost-benefit analysis, cost-benefit analysis is an attempt to take all the complexity, add up all the costs, all the benefits. Costs have a negative sign. The benefits have a positive sign. Add them up. And if it's a positive number after you've taken away the costs, it's worth doing. And that might be true. 
but it's usually not a good starting point. And if we're not careful, it's the ending point. And in these big decisions that I'm talking about while problems, making a pro-con list of things that can't be quantified and trying to weigh them against each other to come to a rational, so-called rational decision about what's the best thing to do is a crazy, misleading, and dangerous idea. And what I suggest in the book is that so often we forget about some of the things that belong in the pro-con list because they're hard to think about. They don't really match the other things. I'll just put them to the side. I'll think about them later. I'll add them in later. I'll Maybe I'll forget about them, in which case I'll make a bad decision. Yeah. Wow. You know, one other thing that you say in the book is that we're always searching for a formula, a calculation that will remove the uncertainty. Formulas are simple. That's a feature, but also a bug. Life is complicated. And I think that the other reason that that struck me so much was because of the fact that there's always this sort of idea that people think that, oh, if I do what this successful person did, I will get the results that they got. And of course, you know, survivorship bias kicks in and yeah, that's how it works. It never turns out like that. Yeah, there's nothing more, um, you know, at the end of ads for investments or financial services, they always say past results are not a guarantee of future success. And if I ask you, is that true? You'll say, of course it's true. Of course past results are not a indicator of future success. Of course tomorrow isn't necessarily going to be like yesterday. I mean, that would be absurd. Of course, sometimes it is true that a trend continues. And I think when we see that, we see those trends continue, we tend to get seduced. And we think, wow, I see how this is going. You know, housing prices go up every year. I, I don't, there's no risk in buying a house. There's no risk in buying a house I can't really quite afford because eventually, soon even, it'll be worth more than I paid for it by a lot. And I can take money out of it if I need to. And there's no risk here, which would be very dangerous. And so that um, seductiveness, that idea that we, it's that often we want to forget that trends need not continue is is incredibly important to be sensitive to and aware of. But it's very hard. We all like patterns and we like trends and it's very normal to think that way. So let's talk about this idea of flourishing. You know, because you say a well-lived life is something more than a pleasant life. The Greeks called the condition of a well-lived life eudaimonia. That word is sometimes translated as happiness or contentment. contentment. Those words fall short of capturing eudaimonia Flourishing is a better translation and the word I'll use here. And you say to flourish as a human being is to live fully. That means more than simply accumulating pleasures and avoiding pain. Flourishing involve, includes living and acting with integrity, virtue, purpose, meaning, dignity, and autonomy. Aspects of life that are not just difficult to quantify, but that you might put front and center regardless of the cost. And you're right. Those are incredibly difficult to quantify. So how does one live a life that allows them to flourish? Well, one of the themes of the book is thinking about who you want to become. One of the shortcomings of economics is that the so-called economic problem is how to get the most out of your scarce resources. It's important to think that way in some settings. But if ultimately what, what the economist's model of, of satisfaction is, is taking what you care about, what are what economists call your preferences, you know, what you like and how much you like those things, and then making sure you spend your money wisely to take that into account, your preferences. And 
the idea that your preferences could change and that you could change what you like, you could change what you care about, does not fit into the economist's model very easily. It could be done, but it's not easy and is almost always ignored. And what I'm suggesting is that you who you are today need to be who you are tomorrow. An obvious example would be, let's say you don't like opera. When I was younger, I didn't like opera. My father sent me uh, a Madame Butterfly and um, he asked me to listen to it. And I didn't do that for a while. And finally, I listened to it and I thought, oh, it's okay. And then I, for some reason, I don't know why, I went inside, I give it a real, quote, real listen. Kind of like what we're talking about, or a real reading of a book. And the music's sublime. Um, but most people would, and for most of my life, I just missed it. You know, there's something beautiful out there. It didn't seem beautiful. You know, a trivial example of this in daily life is um, might be uh, smoky scotch. First time you taste smoky scotch, it's awful. Tastes like an ashtray. Why would you pay money? a lot of money? Uh, my joke with my kids is don't try it until you're at least 40 because it's too expensive a habit to, to, to have. But smoky scotch is delicious once you work, if you work at it. And I would suggest who we are and our character, which is more important whether we drink scotch or not. Our character is something we can work on, we can refine. And I'm not suggesting you spend all, every moment of your life trying to figure out how to be a better person, a more interesting person, a more thoughtful person, a more complete person. But to the extent that you devote some effort to paying attention, what we talked about earlier, and think about who you might aspire to be. And I think that is a, it's just a different way to think about how to make decisions, particularly the decisions we're talking about, about marriage, children, career, and so on. Who do I want to be? Who do I want to become? What am I going to do today that enhances that opportunity or hampers it? First, to do that well, you have to understand yourself. You have to understand your strengths, your weaknesses, your limitations, kind of biases we were talking about earlier, maybe embedded in you from your childhood and your, your in, or your genetics. But it's more than that. It's not just enough to understand yourself. You have to understand something about what you might become. And I, you know, I, I think I devote a paragraph or two, not more, to how you might start thinking about that. Historically, in human experience, people use religion to aspire to something. They use meditation. They might use therapy. They might read reading literature. These are all ways that we discover other people we might be, other hats we might put on, other uniforms we might wear. and. Um, my only suggestion is to give it some thought. Again, don't devote every waking minute to it. It's probably not the right way to do it right anyway. But don't just go through life like a cork bobbing on the ocean and find end up where you might end up. Doesn't mean you should have a plan. I spend a lot of time in the book talking about the, how having a plan is overrated. But it also doesn't mean you just, you know, randomly bob about and and do whatever comes your way. There's a certain paying attention that should take place as you go through life and learn about who you are and who you might become. And then finally, I would just say, most of the ways we learn about ourselves are, are through living. And that's the paying attention part, noticing what certain experiences mean to us, uh, which ones are transcendent versus merely pleasant, which ones are worth making sacrifices for, all those things require um, paying attention. Yeah. 
Well, you make this distinction in the book between the brighter and the better path um, that you said, you know, to kind of observed, Adam Smith observed two ways. One way is to be rich, powerful, and famous. The other is to be wise and virtuous. And then you say the glittering, brighter path is a seductive one. The better path is in the shadows and harder to remember. If you care about flourishing, you have to work hard to keep it front and center. And I think the reason that that struck me so much is that you're right. The glittering, brighter path is incredibly seductive, especially much more, I think, in a world when the parade of everybody's accomplishments is on public display constantly. Yeah. So how do you keep the better path that is in the shadows front and center when you're constantly blinded by the brighter path? And the easy answer, of course, is spend less time on social media. <laughs> yeah, um, of course. Right? Spend less time uh, where people consuming what people claim they've achieved or how attractive they are or how, you know, how much money they've earned and so on. Uh, it's it's pretty clear to most of us that the pictures that people paint of themselves on social media have a lot of um, illusion, right? They're they're not accurate. We all understand that because we're many of us are doing the same thing on our our uh, pages. And so, how do you remember? This is back to the paying attention idea. How do you remember that? That's not exactly who they are. I don't have, you don't have to be jealous of them. That's a fake photo that's been photoshopped, right? That image of themselves is photoshopped. It's funny. My, Adam Smith says he's, he was a strange bird in certain dimensions. Um, I'm sure he knew a lot about women. Uh, he lived with his mom for a while, for a good chunk of his life. He never married. Uh, he never had children. And at one point in his book, he just did the theory of moral sentiments, his other great book, with the Wealth of Nations, he says, why does anybody wear makeup? Mainly women in his day, of course, because it's a lie. It's not who you are. But of course, we're all wearing makeup. We're all got masks on and we're all in our armor. And and it's hard to remember that you're not the only one. The other people are doing it too. It's not the real them. It's a deception. Not necessarily a, a cruel deception. It's not necessarily a manipulative deception. You're not seeing the full story. And so on the jealousy side or the despairing side, I think remembering that is, it's not easy to remember, but it's important. It's clearly one way that I think we can insulate ourselves from the degrading aspects of social media. And having said that, I think Twitter is fantastic. I learned yeah. so many interesting things <laughs> on Twitter. I, I don't spend any time on Facebook. I don't use Instagram. I don't, um, I don't do anything else really besides Twitter. But Twitter is, is, has its own brutality. It's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very cruel place in many, in many cases. Um, but to come back to your front, try to give more of a conclusion to the answer I'm trying to formulate here to your question about people waving all their accomplishments about the glittering path. Um, those things I was talking about before religion, therapy, meditation, literature, they all help with that. Go read the death of of Ivan Illich by um, by Leo Tolstoy. Uh, it's it's not a riveting tale. It is not a page turner, so you may struggle to get through it, but it will remind you of what is important and what is not important. You get to the end of that, you can work your way through. It's about a life uh, of a person that isn't as self-aware as it could have been. 
And it's about a man living a life of illusion from himself. He's not seeing who he really is. And it's a, it's a masterpiece. I, I, I love that book. Um, Read Master and Man by Tolstoy. Another, another short story, a little shorter than uh, The Death of Ivan Illich. Uh, the Master and Man is, a, is another, it'll shake you up. It'll remind you about how important, unimportant money is relative to other virtues and other other things it's a masterpiece read it master and man mm. well i want to finish by talking about one sort of final area that uh you know really struck me and it was this whole idea of settling and you say that i'm not encouraging you to settle i'm telling you that you have to settle the best spouse partner career city doesn't exist and it's not just because they're hard to find it's not a meaningful concept. Settling means to willingly accept an inferior option. When it comes to marriage or all kinds of wild problems, inferior is rarely on the table. Uh, and I think that that is such a hard thing for people to grasp, particularly when it comes to a decision like marriage, where, you know, David Brooks said, he's like, that is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. Might be the second most important. Uh, I, had a, I had an economist colleague at the University of Rochester, Walter Oy, who said, the most important decision in your life is choosing your parents. It was tongue in cheek. Of course, you don't choose your parents. But uh, what he meant was who you are descendant from, both genetically, culturally, is an enormous determinant of who you're going to be. The spouse is the next one. Um, whether to have one at all is a, is a big choice. And then the, which one? <laughs> they won't all take you, of course. You have to find one who will take you, uh, who accepts you, agrees to, to marry you. Um, it's a really important decision. And it's interesting to me. I don't remember if I wrote about this in the book or not, but we don't we don't talk to people or train them in how to think about that decision. We have a lot of cultural weirdness about love. And yeah, I saw her across the room. I knew she was the one. But most of the time, that's not going to be the case. And the, in the movies, it has to be that usually because I only have two hours. So developing a real friendship with the person you're going to end up marrying and, and learning to understand them and realizing how they're going to be important in your life. Uh, you can't do that. It's really hard. There's one movie, I think, that does it a little bit, which is My Fair Lady. I think that's a masterpiece for lots of reasons. But one of them is, I think it's one of the few cinematic treatments of love. You can debate whether it's a very good treatment or not, but it does try to actually uh, look at it deeply. And um, it's tough. It's scary. It's hard. It's easy to postpone, procrastinate. Make a decision by not making one. It's very common. And I think it's increasingly common for young people today. It's very hard to, they're not good to get married. The marriage rate among people in their 20s is way down compared to 50, 60 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago, I think. So it's a real thing. Wow. Well, let's finish by talking about this idea of you know, life with a guidebook, because you say life is a lot like trying to plan a trip to Rome without a guidebook, even if all you care about is having a good time during all too short time on this earth, you'll struggle to anticipate what it is that will bring delight, pleasure and contentment. And it, it, it was funny because it clearly I must have internalized this because in that piece about my advice to freshmen, I said, you know, knowing what you want to do with your life is 
overrated because you've hardly lived any of it yet. Um, so don't yeah. be too committed, believe it or not. The less com- you know, committed you are yeah. in the past, the more likely you are to find one that leads you to where you want to go and makes you, you know, very successful. And countless books and research have now proven this. David Epstein wrote Range, where he talked about this. And, you know, Stephen Kotler talked about this in his most recent book, The Art of Impossible, where he says, you know, you look at peak performers, they tend to seem directionless earlier in their careers. And yet the, all the research seems to show that they just kind of skyrocket up the charts later. Yeah, I think that's probably selection bias to some extent. I, sure. I don't, you know, I think if one has to be, one has to be um, careful. You know, you made a great point earlier. I didn't fully bring my point back to it, which is this idea that imitating someone successful is is a natural response. And I was trying to make the point about trends that imitate. I was, I never made it got to the punchline. Imitating someone is akin to assuming that a trend will continue. It's like. This worked for that person well, then it'll work for me. It worked yesterday, it'll work tomorrow. Not necessarily. In fact, often not the case. So what was your question this time? Glad I got to make that point, but that was the question. Yeah. I forgot already. I guess it wasn't a, a you know, was it? question as much as it was an observation about no, that what, one. Yeah, what was thing. it? The, you know, this whole idea of, you know, planning life, because I, I think it in a lot of ways brings oh. us full circle because, you know, you were talking about the fact that in America, we kind of have this freedom when you go into the education system to explore, yet that freedom to explore also coexists with this tremendous pressure to know what you want to do with your life. I mean, I think part of that is because I was raised in an Indian family where, you know, you're sort of prescribed a life path, doctor, lawyer, engineer pretty early in life, and you're kind of, you know, being forced to choose from the options that are put in front of you and blinded to the possibilities that surround you. Yeah, so... You know, I argue in the book that planning is overrated. Uh, and I also say that, you know, ways get you, helps you get from A to B as quickly as possible, but it doesn't tell you whether you should get to B in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the same issue here that, that you're talking about. The reason planning is overrated is exactly what you said. You don't know who you want to be. You don't know who you are very well. You don't know very much about who you are when you're 18 or 19 or 20. And what is the, so then what? So what's the lesson? And the, for me, the lesson is it doesn't mean, yeah, I just kind of wander around and don't worry about it. Take the pressure off. That's not what I would say is the is the lesson. The lesson is worry less about going somewhere quickly and more about getting better at going. Uh, get better at exploring. Get better at growing your capabilities. Yeah, there's a famous example. I don't like it, but but it's an example of what we're taught. What I'm trying to say. You know, Steve Jobs studied calligraphy, I think, in college for a while, and that paid off for him finally because he ended up paying a lot of attention to fonts when he was designing the app. Okay, that's nice. Is that really the reason? Maybe it's okay, but the the lesson there is not about fonts. The lesson is. Grow as a human being, and you will be amazed at what the applications are later on. Get good at stuff. Learn how to write. Learn how to read. Learn how to think. Help other people. Practice things. Uh, get better at something. It almost doesn't matter what it is. Have a, have a craft that you try to excel at. It is amazing how many times things you did when you were younger that at the time seemed worthless 
maybe even economics, maybe in Berkeley. Turn out to have a payoff later on. I'm not saying you're going to end up at a dairy farm where you're going to apply those lessons, but so many things that we, as as when we're young, say, well, what's this good for? And the answer might be, you have no idea. Wait and see. And a lot of those skills do pay off, I think. Well, it's hilarious. At least in my life, I'm surprised. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, I remember telling that story to my roommate and he said, dude, he said, you create an online course called Maximize Your Output Now. It's like, Jesus, okay. Uh, like, I guess it did come full circle in a very unexpected way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, this has been just an absolute pleasure. Uh, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Explain. Well, when you read a book called Unmistakable, as you know, because we both, I think, are in the same imprint, you have to actually define what the hell you're talking about. Um, so I define unmistakable as something that is so distinctive that nobody else can do it but you in the way that you do it. It's something that is immediately recognized as your work so much so that you don't even have to put your name on it. So what's the question? What do you think makes somebody unmistakable? I don't know. But if we think about what we've been talking about, I'm thinking about some advice I read once from Kevin. I think it was Kevin Kelly. He said, do the things that only you can do. Just one of the things you're essentially talking about. What are those things? Is there a sense in which you're meant to do some things that fulfill who you are, fulfill your uniqueness as a human being? Um, If you can find those things, you're going to have a very good life. Uh, You'll have a meaningful life, a purposeful life a life that brings deep satisfaction. Um, And I wouldn't overemphasize that. I wouldn't say you should spend a lot of time trying to discover what that is, but you should spend a lot of time with your eyes open to notice it if it comes along. And um, those are two different things. They look similar, but they're different. And I think a lot of what we've been talking about today is being able to notice when things come along that are meant for you beautiful uh, um i've enjoyed talking to you so much this is just been absolutely um brilliant thought-provoking and insightful uh where can people find out more about you your work the book and everything that you're up to i archive all my work at russroberts.info uh so that's the easiest place i'm on twitter at econ talker uh my podcast is econ talk all 850 episodes going back to 2006 are available without charge. And um, I have a page at Medium. So with essays, but you can find those at RussRoberts.info. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.